Blog Talk Radio. Good morning and welcome to NJSBA's Blog Talk Radio, Conversations on New Jersey Education, a show dedicated to creating a conversation among those of us in the education community and beyond on the important education issues of the day. A conversation that brings the state leaders to you and educational leaders to you, and I hope that you all feel free to join in on the conversation. My name is Ray Penny, and I will be your host this morning. A couple of ground rules. Uh, if you're on the computer, first, we will not be using the chat room feature of the show today. If you are interested in calling in, a few things you should know. You, to call in, you dial 1-347-989-8904, 8904 And when you are ready to make a comment or ask a question, press 1, and that will indicate my switchboard that you are ready to uh, speak. I have someone who will be screening the callers. Her name is Lauren, so that I can get the names of the caller and their question or topic. Also, if you're on the phone line, I will ask that you turn your computer, the volume on your computer down since they're at different intervals and there's a delay. Finally, I probably will not be taking callers within the first five minutes, so be patient, but I will. Uh, on January 5th of this year, Governor Christie signed the Anti-Bullying Bill of Rights. The bill passed both houses with near-unanimous support. The law is designed to combat harassment and bullying in schools through training, instruction, and detailed reporting procedure for bullying incidents. This is a landmark legislation which undoubtedly will have implications in all school districts. I know that some school administrators and school board members believe that this is an unfunded mandate, and we'll touch on that issue later on. This show is a little different today in that we are not discussing a future proposal or bill, but one that has already passed and one that we have to implement. Hopefully this will help your school district better prepare for this law. I'm very pleased today to have with us a school board attorney, Paul Green, who is a partner with the firm of Shank, Price, Smith, and King. Welcome, Paul. Thank you, Ray. Uh, Paul, why don't you tell us a little bit about your background as a school board attorney? Uh, well, I've been uh, practicing in this field for over 29 years, uh, but I've actually been privileged to, have, uh, prior to that, actually clerked for my dad, Jacob Green, who is a pioneer in this field of school law. And uh, so I've actually been working in this field since the 70s, uh, doing all manner of representation. One of the things I love about about representing school districts is you do um, pretty much everything from soup to nuts. It's like representing a complex commercial entity, but with the the added uh, complexity of dealing with uh, tenure laws and students and special education and uh, First Amendment issues. And it's just a fascinating area, as the uh, that Navy commercial used to say, it's not a job, it's an adventure. Uh, <laughs> so it's a it's a great it's a wonderful area to be, and I really enjoy it. Yeah, and uh, and it's a field that I I guess would change because I, I always my part of the job is fighting change or fighting for change, and there's always change every year, which this law is. Absolutely. Change is a certainty in this area. Uh, it's a constantly changing and shifting dynamic that we deal with, and uh, this is one example of that, absolutely. Uh, before we get into the specifics of this law, which you and I both discussed earlier, we could discuss for hours. Sure. Uh, what's the goal of this law, and how does it go about meeting those goals? Well, as, as we all know, there there was a, an anti-bullying statute in effect previously. It was adopted in 2002 and was amended in 2007 to add cyberbullying, uh, and in 2008 uh, to require that the districts put, put their anti-bullying policies on their websites. Uh, so the um, goal here is to really extend what's already in place uh, to address what the legislature felt was a need 
to better define harassment, intimidation, and bullying, uh, to better manage the process, to be more effective at uh, preventing uh, harassment, intimidation, and bullying, as well as to effectively investigate and deal with uh, reports of it so that um, essentially we can do whatever we can to eliminate this uh, as a problem in our schools. Um, there are a number of steps the statute takes. It, it makes some amendments to the definition, which we'll talk about in a minute. Um, it uh, provides for training of uh, staff and board members. It provides a, a very rigorous investigative process, uh, which once it's triggered must be completed very quickly. It requires the creation of some additional positions in the districts uh, and basically sets up a framework uh, to to uh, monitor the effectiveness of how districts are doing with this, including uh, essentially setting up a system to grade every school and overall every district in how it's complying with the goals of the legislation. Okay, well, let's get to the first thing. How do we define what harassment or bullying is? I'd have how is to, this law a little different? Uh, well, I, I, I apologize, but I'm going to have to read you the definition because it's not something that can be paraphrased. Uh, and it actually is fairly lengthy. Uh, it's harassment, intimidation, or bullying. Uh, it's defined as meaning any gesture, which can simply be a physical gesture, any written, verbal, or physical act, or any electronic communication, whether a single incident or a series of incidents that is reasonably perceived, and that key word is reasonably is very key here, as being motivated either by any actual or perceived characteristic, such as race, color, religion, ancestry, national origin, gender, sexual orientation, gender identity and expression, or a mental, physical, or sensory disability, or by any other distinguishing characteristic. And that is an interesting question of what that means. That takes place on school property, at any school-sponsored function, on a school bus, off school grounds, as provided for elsewhere in the statute. And then uh, this was added, a uh, very key point here, that substantially disrupts or interferes with the orderly operation of the school or the rights of other students. The statute then goes on, and it says, and that, uh, and it has three subparagraphs. A, a reasonable person should know under the circumstances will have the effect of physically or emotionally harming a student or damaging the student's property or placing a student in reasonable fear of physical or emotional harm to his person or damage to his property. B, has the effect of insulting or demeaning any student or group of students or C, creates a hostile educational environment for the student by interfering with the student's education or by severely or pervasively causing physical or emotional harm to the student. So it's a fairly detailed definition uh, and obviously one that is going to have to be analyzed on a case-by-case -case basis as these particular complaints come up. Wow. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> uh, before I get into more specifics, uh, for a school district, a board member, an administrator, one of the things that they're going to have to create is the law is very specific on reporting incidents. That's a big part of the law. Uh, can you walk us through what some of the things, uh, assuming that someone wants to report an incident, tell us the system that the school district needs to set up to comply with this law. Sure. Well, the statute uh, actually has two different parts that talk about the reporting um, in terms of who gets reported. Uh, the, the first part where it says uh, that the uh, acts of harassment, intimidation, or bullying must be reported verbally to the school principal uh, in the case where a school employee or a contracted service provider witnesses or receives reliable information regarding the incident. So the first part you have is uh, it says that where it's a school employee or a, a vendor, essentially, um, they must report to the principal. Uh, later on, the statute talks about any member of a board of education 
as well as a school employee contracted service provider, student, or volunteer. So that section creates like a little different subcategory when it talks about a board of ed member, a student, or a volunteer in addition to the employee of the contracted service provider. And they are uh, supposed to report to uh, whoever the appropriate school official is who's designated by the school district's policy uh, or to any administrator or safe schools resource officer. <laughs> Excuse me. So you have a, a little bit of a dichotomy in there between the, the two basic reporting uh, requirements. Presumably, a district's policy will lay out uh, that the particular incidents, no matter who's reporting it, should be reported uh, to the principal. However, there's something that, that boards need to think about in doing their policies, which is that typically we do not have board members dealing directly with administrators. Uh, and it's it's typical in most districts, partly because of the School Ethics Act, but also partly just because of history um, and, and very good policy reasons to have board members dealing directly with the superintendent. So a district may want to think about whether in the case of a board member, uh, it would put the superintendent in as the person to report to for a board member. The difficulty there is, of course, now you're adding another link to the chain, and there may be an issue in terms of um, if somebody drops the ball, uh, what will happen there. Uh, so those are kind of competing policy considerations that districts need to think about. But as a general rule, I would imagine most policies will just provide that the principal of the building will be the individual to report to, uh, unless for some reason it's it's for some unusual incident that's not involving a particular building, uh, you might report at that point to the uh, district-wide anti-bullying coordinator, which we'll talk about in a moment. Um, let me just go on and use the word reliable. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, if a board member, or a member of the public, or I guess almost anyone, uh, has reliable information, uh, I guess, re how do we define reliable? Well, you know, the the statute does say reliable, and the question is, you know, what what does that really mean? A court looking at it would look at the dictionary essentially, uh, and reliable at its essence is kind of a circular definition. It means capable of being relied upon. Uh, and uh, you know, if you look at rely, it, it uh, is the essence of it is to have confidence, uh, typically based on experience, which is not necessarily the case here. But something that's dependable, that's credible, uh, that you have reason to believe is uh, is, is potentially true, uh, that at least it's not either patently false or uh, totally uh, incredible. Uh, obviously, that's a difficult question because you could be second guessed down the road. Uh, by a judge or other authority in terms of whether or not you made the right decision. Um, and what makes it more complicated is that unlike the child abuse statute, which provides for absolute immunity for reporting uh, incidents, suspected incidents of child abuse, uh, there is uh, an immunization in the statute, but it only uh, immunizes uh, a board member, essentially, um, from any failure of the district to remedy the harassment if the board member makes the report. So. Uh, although a board member or a school employee would uh, presumably be indemnified if they're acting within the scope of their employment, which I would imagine they would be here, there is still uh, potential liability in the sense of the district could be sued, uh, as well as the board member or the employee, uh, for making an allegedly false or defamatory report of, of harassment. So it's not an easy um, question to answer. But wouldn't that, wouldn't yeah. it be difficult for a board member or... I, almost anyone in that you feel the pressure that you have to report it because you would most likely get in trouble. The district would get in trouble for not reporting something, and you think it's reliable, but later on it's found that it, it was a false uh, accusation, and it wasn't 
not that you did it on purpose or anything to that sort. So is right. that a quandary for a well, it is, but I, it, it is, but I think it's the situation where you, you basically have to make the report. Unless, to me, the, the biggest one that causes a problem is if you have an anonymous uh, tip of some sort, because typically we don't respond right. to anonymous complaints or anonymous information. Um, in the absence of some corroborating evidence or some further evidence, uh, the question is whether you, you would even dig further into that. And of course, once the report is made, it has to be investigated. So that, that's the threshold issue, and uh, it's it's not an easy one to answer, and it's it's possible that uh, a board member may want to consult. One of the things I, I'm going to repeat as a mantra here, uh, and not because I am a board attorney, but because it's just so essential in this in this area, is you know, always consult your board attorney on these issues. Um, it could be that a board member who wants to perhaps make a uh, an inquiry through the board president um, may want to get some legal advice in terms of whether there's a reporting obligation for a specific incident. Uh, in terms of that, and, and have that within the purview of attorney-client privilege, but uh, it's it's a very difficult question. Um, but unless it's patently, you know, clearly false or or anonymous, I think uh, the, the probably the the need is going to be to err on the side of caution and make the report. Yeah. Okay. Uh, I have another question, but before I do, uh, I'm talking to Paul Green, a school board attorney. Uh, if you're listening uh, and you want to dial in, the number is one three four seven nine eight nine eight nine zero four to ask a question. If you're on the switchboard and listening by the phone and you want to comment, just press 1, and that will indicate to us that you want to ask a question. Uh, Paul, one of the other things that this uh, bill does is set up a new position, the anti-bullying coordinator. Uh, right. It's a new position, but it's not a new person in the building. Uh, it's already someone that you have in your system. Um, what is the role of this person? Well, there actually there are two uh, two positions. One is the anti-bullying specialist, which uh, you have to have in each school, uh, and then the anti-bullying coordinator, uh, who is the uh, overall district-wide coordinator. And that person uh, has to coordinate and strengthen the policies uh, to prevent, identify, and address harassment. To collaborate with the specialists in each of the schools, uh, with the board, with the superintendent. Uh, to provide data uh, and to execute other duties, since it's always the and such other duties as the superintendent specifies. Uh, and so that person oversees essentially the anti-bullying operation in the district, both the uh, investigation, the policy, the prevention, the uh, the whole ball of wax essentially. Uh, and then in the buildings themselves, we have the specialists who have to uh, chair the safety team that we'll talk about in a minute, who lead the investigation uh, in that particular school of a complaint. Um, and act as the primary school official for preventing, identifying, and addressing harassment in that building. So you've got the combination of the building people and the, the district-wide person. Uh, and I'm correct to believe that that person is someone that's not a new position. So, Well, but, uh, supposedly. I mean, the legislature said where possible. Um, and, uh, you know, the question that's come up is, uh, you know, is this an unfunded mandate? Uh, as, as you know, we have a, a constitutional amendment that we put in place in 1995 that, that essentially makes unfunded government mandates unconstitutional and sets up a council uh, that uh, reviews that. Uh, and the legislature, uh, in the preamble or the the introductory part of the statute, uh, does make reference to ensuring that the resources are better managed and to minimize the burden that existing personnel and resources shall be utilized in every possible instance. Um, but at every presentation uh, at, at which I've uh, made on this uh, to board members and administrators, uh, generally the, the statement that uh, there should be no significant additional funding required is just met with total incredulity. 
because, uh, frankly, it is very burdensome. No, no one questions the goals of the statute or the need to address this issue, but uh, there's no question that there will be additional cost uh, in terms of, A, the potential impact even in using existing staff. The statute does say that uh, the collective negotiations still remain very much alive in this area, so any increase in workload to any individual who's within a bargaining unit is going to be negotiable. Uh, plus, any duties that you, you have these people take on will mean that something else doesn't get done, so there will be some some loss of productivity somewhere else. So there's no question there's an impact on, on the districts. Whether or not that rises to the level of an unfunded mandate is, is an interesting question. It might be difficult to show just just what that cost impact is, but there's no, no doubt that this is essentially a, a reallocation of resources, if nothing else. Okay. Uh, we have a caller who wants to ask. We have Karen from Dumont. She has a question. Uh, Karen? Hi, how are you? Hi. Yes, I'm. I my question is, um, what kind of things can we put in place for uh, to make the students aware who are reporting? I understand that they can't let anything go um, without looking into it. But when it's a case of a hearsay where one student reports something about another student and there's nobody there to witness it, um, you know, who's to say what really happened? The student who reports, of course, you don't want to scare them from reporting because it could be something. However, the student that's reported, um, you know, claims that it wasn't that case at all and that family is affected. Um, you know, we, I think that there needs to be some sort of things in place to teach the kids, you know, to exactly what happens when they do report something, especially if it is falsely. What's also to prevent them from doing that, you know, spitefully? That's uh, absolutely, absolutely true. Good very, very very, good points. Um, well, first of all, there will be training to be done on this, and there will be guidance from the Department of Education. Uh, they are working on developing regulations that are currently drafted that uh, have not yet been posted on their website, but I think will be shortly. Uh, and um, the training that is actually going to occur is supposed to also include guidance for districts uh, in terms of developing anti-bullying programs by way of uh, or basically presentations to the students uh, in service for the staff. Uh, the, the policy itself is supposed to lay out in detail some of that. But part of that training has to be done for the students as well. So in essence, it's it's a matter of a, of a pass-through on the training. We're, we're going to train the trainers, if you will, and have training for the administration in terms of how exactly you, you do some of this to get this point across to the students. Uh, very important to, to make sure that they're aware not only of the, the need to refrain from this, but, but also the need to report it and the consequences for false reporting. Um, right. So that that's that it's a very fundamental question and uh, it's not an easy answer, but it's something that obviously yeah, needs to be worked there. <laughs> yeah. My my other concern is that um, you know when when we were kids, you know you kind of were allowed to duke it out and work it out on the playground, and now this uh, law is going to extend beyond the school, which. Hello. Uh oh. Uh, Karen, are you? Hold on. Karen, you're back on. Yes. Oh, uh, I was just saying you got that. You off. Okay. I was just saying that um, I also wondered, you know, when we were kids, we were allowed right. to work it out on the playground. Now this law is going to extend beyond school. Um, and, of course, technically you could say that any child would be affected still in school from it. Um, okay. What, what, what kind of – I think we need to put some programs in for kids to be able to vent some of their frustrations so this doesn't happen. 
All right, uh, Paul, she, she actually leads right into what my next question was, which was right. the off-campus incident, which is uh, probably a, a bigger concern for districts because they haven't really gone too much in that area or as much. Karen, I'm going to put you on hold, and you can listen to the answer. Okay, thank you. Okay. Yeah, it's it's an excellent question, and it's a very good point. And it's, it's probably the most difficult area that we're dealing with at the moment. Um, the, it does extend specifically to off-campus bullying, uh, and it essentially piggybacks onto the existing regulation, which talks about the ability to discipline for off-campus incidents uh, where there is a substantial nexus, if you will, a substantial interference uh, with the uh, the school's operation. And there, first of all, it's important to note that there's no obligation on the part of districts to investigate, um, to go out looking for this. Uh, this is only where a school employee is made aware that it's occurring. And where that occurs, uh, then you do have an obligation to look into it, but you have to basically um, determine uh, essentially does it meet that, that level of conduct where it really substantially interferes. And that's a standard that really comes in from uh, the Supreme Court's case in Tinker versus Des Moines, dealing with the ability to discipline for off-campus speech. And it's actually very interesting. Uh, I was at the oral argument on uh, two cases, J.S. and Layshock in the Third Circuit last June, which which dealt with the ability of a school district to discipline pupils for creating these phony websites, these phony Facebook pages. Uh, and the attorney for the ACLU, for what it's worth, during that argument, uh, did acknowledge that from uh, the American Civil Liberties Union's perspective, cyberbullying is a is a different issue. It's it's not protected speech, and it is something that can, that that certainly can be acted upon to discipline students, but you still have this regulation which says that you can only discipline um, if there is some substantial interference with the, the school's operation, or we have now the statute adding um, substantial interference with the student's educational rights. So it's not going to be every instance of uh, cyberbullying that's going to be actionable in terms of discipline, but the fact that you can't discipline for it doesn't mean you still don't necessarily act on it. Um, at a minimum, even if you cannot discipline a student, uh, or you may discipline a student by doing something less, such as removal from the extracurricular program for a period of time, um, which actually is another case that's currently in litigation, but that's another story. Uh, you um, you still should act on it in terms of at least bringing the parents in, at least discussing with them what's going on. Obviously, if there is some kind of a Facebook page or a web page that's up that's causing some issues, getting it taken down uh, and working with the parents to have that accomplished. So that even if you don't necessarily discipline a pupil, you still deal with it. Uh, and you, you need to be very sensitive, especially to whether or not it's a kind of a continuing incident and once, once you have uh, acted on it, if it's still an issue and if it's still the buzz in the school. Um, and, in fact, that was one of the questions one of the judges asked uh, at the oral argument on those other cases. Well, you know, what if the kids are just texting each other in the school? Is that now? Has it been brought into the school? Is that disruptive? To what extent, uh, you know, is it is it mm -hmm. causing a problem for the student? Um, those are all things that we're all going to be struggling with. I mean, there, there's, there's definitely a case-by-case -case analysis. Uh, you need to look at this very carefully. There's going to have to be a body of uh, uh, case law built up on this. We're going to have to see what the regulations say. Uh, but uh, it, it's something that we just need to be aware of and just kind of need to work our way through, really incident by incident. That's really what uh, it comes down to. Yeah. Well, I'm going to bring up an incident, and I'm just making this up, but... Uh, Say an incident occurs at a party on a Saturday night, and two students who are involved, and one does, or someone brings a, files a, a complaint, and they're in a class where, say, it's the AP class, and there's only one of those classes, and they're both 
in that class, and that can happen in a lot of small or large districts if it's a, a specific class. How does the district try to deal with that uh, discipline problem? Very difficult. I mean, you'd be talking about counseling. Uh, in that case, where it's impossible uh, to remove the students from the class. I mean, th there have been situations where students have been so distraught over incidents that they've actually been unable to enter a particular classroom. Uh, you might at that point ultimately be looking at having the student taking a course somewhere else, uh, potentially, uh, maybe having an aide in the room, some something along that line. Um, very, I mean, again, a very, very difficult uh, situation to deal with where you don't have the option to essentially um, move a student somewhere else and uh, and at least separate them, which also ties into how do you deal with the students while the investigation is underway. Um, because here you have a situation, you're talking about Saturday night the incident occurs, Monday morning it gets reported, the student's distraught. Well, what do we do? Because we haven't even investigated this to determine whether it's true, uh, whether it's occurred, and yet here we have a student who's obviously uh, in some distress. Uh, so the administration's going to need to be fairly creative in terms of how to even deal with those, mm -hmm. uh, whether we're talking about maybe providing some one-on-one -on -one instruction for a period of time while it's looked into. Uh, for the, the student who's the victim, um, the student who's the, the alleged harasser, uh, it's really very difficult to be removing somebody or suspending them pending uh, the investigation unless you feel it's really so severe that, that it's just essential to the orderly operation of the school or the protection of the other student. Um, again, you know, very much determinant on the facts of the case and what's going on at the time. And uh, I can't stress enough that, that you really need to be working very closely with your attorney on this because the Legal ramifications, uh, you're dealing with competing interests here, um, are just so great that you really need to analyze it very carefully in light of the law. And there's you know, limited guidance that we have so far in terms of this. We're really out on the bleeding edge to some extent uh, in, in dealing with this particular issue and what we've put in place here. So, okay, uh, for, for our callers, uh, if you want to dial in, it's one three four seven nine eight nine eight nine zero four. Press 1 if you have a question. I'm talking with Paul Green, an attorney with... Uh, uh, Shank Price, Smith and King, and um, let's switch topics. I could stay on that that topic for a long time. Well, we could discuss uh, this topic all day. Sure. <laughs> yeah. uh, the law does create a uh, school safety team. What? <coughs> excuse me. What is that entity's role? That's a a team that's basically composed of the uh, principal, uh, or the principal can designate someone who uh, should be a senior administrator in the school. Uh, a teacher, uh, the school anti-bullying specialist, a parent of a student in the school, uh, and other members who the principal determines. And that team meets at least twice per year uh, and basically has a number of responsibilities. The team uh, basically receives complaints of harassment that have been reported, uh, not to investigate, but just to uh, be aware of and to review the complaints. They receive copies of any report prepared after the investigation. Uh, and they identify and address patterns of harassment. So the, the uh, goal of the team is to uh, essentially see what's going on in the school, see if we have any patterns. Uh, do we need to review and strengthen the school climate and the policies to prevent and address harassment? Uh, part of the team's role is also to educate the community. Uh, and this comes back to uh, the previous caller's question with regard to uh, the students, because the team has to educate the students, teachers, administrative staff, and parents uh, to prevent and address harassment, intimidation, or bullying. Uh, so that that team has a very crucial function uh, to to deal with those issues, to collaborate with the district-wide coordinator in the collection of data, uh, and to essentially, uh, that, that they're really the front line, if you will, in terms of 
uh, in, with what the legislature contemplates in terms of actually implementing the goals of this legislation. These are the people that are on the ground in the building that need to be overseeing the process and make sure that it's effective, essentially. So they're they're the front line to see that the the respective policies are being carried out, to see if there's a pattern going on, uh, the eyes and the ears for the administration. Mm-hmm. Um, now this was, while this law is new, obviously, uh, a lot of districts have had anti-bullying policies of some sort, um, and some are more effective than others at doing that. Um, uh, which, what should a district be doing to make sure that they're better prepared for this law, though, as basics, basically? Well, the, well, the, the couple of key things. The, the policy is the first step, and it's very, very important. Um, that's critical. Uh, and uh, ironically, the, the districts have to have their first revised policy into the executive county superintendents by September 1st of this year. Um, but it's interesting. The statute says the commissioner of education um, has to adopt amendments to the the Department of Education's model policy uh, 90 days after the effective date of the statute, which means the statute goes into effect September 1st. So it means that the, the school districts have to have their policies into the executive county super three months before the Commissioner of Education has to actually put the model policy up. So uh, the key is, and, and most districts are already working on this very closely, uh, to get a policy in place, you may have to revise it, or you, certainly these are policies that you are always looking at anyway, but you probably will consider revising it once the Department of Ed puts its model policy up. School Boards Association uh, has its model policy that it's working on in terms of those revisions. I think that's about a 14-page policy mm-hmm. uh, to give you some idea of you know, just what's involved here. Um, and that certainly is, uh, is a good place to look for guidance. Uh, and districts really need to have their teams working on this already. Uh, you should really have, um, if you've got SACs in the district, uh, have them involved in part of the process. You need to start looking at who are you going to designate for your uh, anti-bullying coordinator and your uh, specialists. Uh, generally, th- these are guidance counselors or school psychologists who are looking to to, uh, to help with these duties. Uh, and districts should, at this point, uh, not be waiting. They should really, by now, be underway working on looking at their existing policy, looking at the statute requirements, uh, and amending the policy, and discussing some of the issues that we're talking about here today, because uh, the best way to, to, to contemplate some of these is to sit down and start talking about what is it we have to do, what are our goals, what are we required to do by way of procedures, uh, and start essentially banging around with some of the what-ifs. You know, what if this? Mm-hmm. I mean, some of the questions, the question you asked was an excellent one, which is what do we do if we have a situation where uh, you know, it's a small class, and there is no option in terms of of moving students, um, which is never ideal to begin with. But uh, sometimes it's it's the only remedy you have available. And if that's not available, what well, do you do? Well, in these areas of budget cuts, there's probably more of those incidents where there's yeah. less cla- less available classes. Um, actually, Karen has called again, and she, Karen, ha- Karen uh, was going to an area that I wanted to go to next, but Karen. Uh, you had a question on uh, other students involved um, in yes. bullying. Yes, I, I was, I had read a, a couple of times the law, the 22 pages, and there is something that I recall on um, if there is a, an incident between two LD students um, or yes. you know special ed kids. I didn't, however, um, a situation I'm referring to might include a a regular ed and an LD, and I don't see any provisions for that. Do you know if they're planning on? coming up with any any determination with that? 
Not that I know of. Uh, basically, the statute does talk about uh, where it occurs exclusively among or between uh, students with uh, special education students or with developmental disabilities. Uh, and in that circumstance, you have discretion to determine whether you have to report. Okay. But uh, it's basically limited to that circumstance. When you have a, a non-classified pupil and a classified pupil, uh, now, I would say that if it's a classified pupil that's alleged to be doing the harassment or the intimidation, um, that is probably something, although it may need to be reported, that is something that the child study team is likely going to be involved in, uh, in terms of determining uh, what's going to happen with that. Uh, and if there's potential discipline, there will be a manifestation determination. So the, the there there will be a procedure involved to deal with that. Clearly, if it's a non-classified, harassing a classified, that's really no different than any other circumstance. Mm -hmm. uh, but the actual the actual provision which says the discretion of whether it's necessary to report is only when you're dealing between classified or, or developmentally disabled pupils. So the, it would have to be reported otherwise. Okay. The only question then becomes whether the CST would then perhaps get involved in it. It might get diverted into uh, the special education channel as opposed to potentially going through uh, the other route. But um, an investigation report will have to be done and the procedure will have to be followed. Thank you. Sure. Okay, any other uh, questions, Karen? Uh, no, I just I did want to just um, take a minute and say that I do enjoy, um, I'm so glad about this blog radio because I do enjoy listening um, to the interviews. I find them very informative, and I just want to thank you very much. Okay? Okay, Karen, thank you. Thank, thank you, you very much. You made my day, so. Okay. <laughs> yes, very good. I'm, I enjoy it. Thank you. Okay. Bye-bye. Right. I'm going to put well, I have one fan out there, so um, <laughs> you got to start somewhere. Yeah. <laughs> uh, going back, I guess going back to to the other things that the districts need to be doing um, to to basically better prepare for it. Uh, obviously, there's going to be training, and that's going to be a key component. And uh, keep an eye out for the regulations because those will be posted at some point and. Uh, attend some of the seminars that are going on and some of the training seminars or, or at least the introductory seminars are already occurring uh, and have your policy committee basically take a very careful look at the statute because uh, you need to be aware of what's involved and uh, I, really I would try to get the anti-bullying coordinator and the specialists essentially if not formally appointed at least uh, identified <clears throat> at this point so that they can start on this yeah it probably would be important for them to start now uh, in, in this new area, um, yeah. yeah, I did have a, a well on a. You did bring up the point of training, and that's another point that I've heard. I'm not sure if you've heard, but from districts that that's where they feel the state mandates state pay because this and there will be training done that there doesn't appear to be any additional funds to do this training that it'll be have to be done within what they have now. Have you heard that same? Yes, yeah. There, there. You know, there, there is a. Uh, a, a voluntary fund that was essentially created that, uh, you know, apparently has it really doesn't have anything uh, in it at this point. There's a bullying prevention fund, um, which is supposed to uh, have a combination of state appropriations, donations, and interest to help deal with some of these issues. But of course, so far the state has not appropriated anything. There's there's nothing available to appropriate, uh, and I don't think they've had much in the way of donations. Uh, that that fund, if it does ever get off the ground, uh, might potentially be used to help pay for some of the training, but it's unlikely any time in the near future that's going to occur. 
So this will be uh, essentially a district expense. School boards is going to be uh, also again, doing the training for board members, so presumably that will be funded through the, the school board dues, but obviously that means that school boards has to divert something to this yes, uh, from some of the other of, programs. It, it's part of our mandatory training that we do now. We will be incorporating this into that, and it that means you're right. We will be dropping other areas of the curriculum. Uh, right. One thing we should point out, too, is that board members only need to be trained once. Uh, you're trained either when you're first elected or appointed or uh, the first time you're reelected or appointed, but you only you only need to have that training one time, although it's a practical matter. I imagine that, as you said, it will be built into the training anyway. Yeah, and part uh, of the mandatory training is for uh, legal updates when you get right. uh, reelected, and I'm sure this one will not stay stagnant uh, through the years. There will be changes. Uh Part of the things that you have to do in this bill, um, can a board make a more stringent policy than is already uh, in place with this law? I know this law is pretty stringent, but... Yes, uh, they... a, board, a board certainly can. Uh, the only thing you have to be careful with is, obviously, you, you cannot um, discipline pupils for off-campus conduct that goes beyond the scope of the existing statute and regulation. So uh, you, you can't basically say, we're going to discipline a pupil whether or not there's uh, the substantial interference or the impact on the other pupil, but I don't think too many people are going to go in that direction. Uh, but you, you can have more stringent procedures. You can um, create more stringent timelines than the statute provides for, although how on earth you could possibly implement them, I can't even imagine since you know, right now, you, you basically the principal has to act, and uh, the investigation has to be completed essentially in such a short amount of time that uh, how you're going to do it in less than the ten days that, that's allotted is is uh, is tough to imagine. And that's something that boards should be aware of, and I guess everyone is that the timelines there, if you read through it, are very uh, on the reporting are, are quick for this investigation. Yes, uh, ab absolutely. I mean, you know, it talks about a verbal report to the principal essentially the same day or within a day, and a written report within two days, and uh, that the investigation has to be completed as soon as possible, but no more than 10 days, uh, you know, from the receipt of the written report of the, uh, the harassment. Uh, so essentially within 12 days from the alleged, you know, time it's reported, uh, that, that whole thing, that whole process has to be completed, uh, and then within two school days, those have to be reported to the superintendent who then has to make recommendations on intervention services, training, discipline, counseling, et cetera. And it's important to point out, we're not just talking about discipline here. Um, you know, The goal here is prevention and uh, as well as dealing with the, the consequences of, of the harassment. And uh, as a result, that uh, there could be training, there could be intervention, there could be counseling uh, on the part of both the, the, the victim and the harasser. Uh, and it's not just a matter of uh, automatically disciplining a pupil. You need to be looking at the the whole gestalt here when you deal right. with it. I could see an incident, and I think Karen had brought it up, where kids are on the playground, uh, where someone is accused of being a bully, and they didn't even realize that they were bullying. Uh, what are the rights of the parents of both students, sort of, in this incident? You know, the, both the kids being bullied, which I think the law is really focusing on, but what about someone who might be falsely accused or didn't even know. That well, that's the right. That's the whole point of the investigative process. I mean, obviously, the the um, accused and the parents have to be brought into that process. Uh, they have to be given every opportunity to be essentially confronted with the the uh, evidence, the the nature of the allegation, and an opportunity to respond. Uh, then, when that report is issued, uh, the results are reported to the board of education. Um, no later than its next meeting following the completion of the investigation. And five school days after the board gets the report, 
the parents and guardians are entitled to receive the information, uh, including the findings, the recommended discipline, the services, etc. And then the parent or guardian on either side, essentially, has a right to request a board hearing. Uh, and that has to be held within 10 days of the request. So boards are going to have to be prepared to uh, hold some special meetings, essentially, uh, on very short notice uh, with respect to that. Well, that might be another co- cost that they... Potentially. I mean, I've heard, I've heard, you know... Cost. I've heard board members complain, and now we have to have our attorneys sitting here at this hearing at a, at 160 an hour, and you know, going on about that. And uh, it is a potential additional cost as well as the as the difficulty. I mean, the, the impact. And again, no one's questioning the importance of this area. It's just the question of what's the impact of it. Uh, you know, the impact on your administration and on on their productivity to tie them up in these processes uh, will will be significant uh, when you get these. Uh, there's no two ways about it, uh, but the legislature felt very strongly that uh, that's just a cost that has to be paid to deal with this issue uh, in terms of that. And uh, basically, after the board hearing is held, uh, of course, if the parents are uh, dissatisfied on either side, they can appeal to the Commissioner of Education. Uh, as well, there there may be specific issues uh, if it's a situation involving any protected area under the law against discrimination. Uh, a complaint can be filed with the Division of Civil Rights. Uh, as well as, uh, you know, potentially, ultimately, litigation in the courts. So there are a variety of remedies that the parents have uh, on both sides. But you're absolutely right. Um, you know, students can potentially be falsely accused, or it could be a circumstance where it was not harassment and it was something very innocent. And one hopes that that process will will work all that out, and uh, that it'll ultimately be determined fairly and uh, in terms of what's going on. But uh, as we all know, in these areas, you often cannot please some people uh in terms of dealing with uh with these kinds of issues and there's always some issues that you know, some parents just uh will determine to carry out and, and that's fine i mean that's their right and uh if they feel that they've been wronged or that the, the board did not reach the correct result then uh they have an avenue of appeal to to deal with that so that uh, certainly the, the 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 key is to maintain the due process protections of both sides uh some of the other critical areas that, that we have to deal with and we have to sort out. A couple of other areas is to what extent does law enforcement get involved and what happens to the process when that when they do. Um, because typically once law enforcement comes in, they say, okay, we'll take it from here. Uh, you know, back off, don't interfere with our investigation, uh, which essentially brings this whole investigative process to a halt. Uh, and the determination of whether to make that report to law enforcement is something the administration kind of needs to consult with the board attorney on and determine what's going on in the particular facts. So there's a lot of a lot of questions. How to protect student confidentiality? To what extent you release what information? Uh, these are all things that uh, that we're going to be kind of feeling our way through in the next few months. You know, for those uh, who didn't get a chance to listen or watch the testimony as to why this bill got passed, it, it did come. The most effective testimony uh, came from parents of or students who were bullied, and. Um, yeah, it was it was it heart-wrenching. It was very heart-wrenching, yeah, and absolutely. it really uh, – the, the bill did pass unan- unan- almost unanimously. And even though the governor had some reservations, I know, about some of the mm-hmm. structure of it, he too passed it. And uh, and people can say what they want on that. But uh, it, it did have popular support uh, among most absolutely. people that I, mean, I saw. Yeah, when you hear – I mean, look, when you hear about students committing suicide over over harassment and, and uh, some of the horrible consequences that, that this conduct can result in, sure. I mean, no one questions the, the legitimacy uh, of the goals. It's just uh, obviously a, a process that we're going to have to deal with. And, 
it is going to be difficult for us, but uh, we just have to do it. It's as simple okay. as that at this point. Paul, uh, do you have any, uh, briefly, uh, in about 30 seconds, uh, any final words of advice for school districts? Only, uh, as I said, get that policy in place. Uh, that's that's your key guidance. Keep an eye out for the regulations. Uh, obviously, at the training, we're going to all be uh, working further on how we deal with these these kinds of issues. And, uh, and again, my other mantra is uh, I can't say it strongly enough. Uh, consult your board attorney on this stuff on a case-by-case basis because this is just a work in progress. And uh, we're all going to be kind of learning it together and uh, using our best uh, judgment in terms of how to apply the law to the facts of every one of these cases. Okay, that brings us uh, to the end of another Conversations on New Jersey Education. I'd like to thank Paul Green for joining me. Paul, thank you. Thank you so much. I enjoyed it. Okay. Uh, I'll, I may have you back. Um, I hope everyone enjoyed the conversation. As I always say, our kids' education is too important not to talk about. We have two. We don't. We will not have a show next Friday, but the following Friday after that, April 8th, we will, uh, and we will have uh, people representatives from the task force that looked at teacher effectiveness and teacher evaluations. And I thank you for listening and tuning in, and I look forward to talking to you again in two weeks. Thank you, and goodbye. Thanks, Ray.